this is a bad idea. Is it ever a good one? Honestly. Welcome, everyone, to episode 16 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and this week on the podcast, we'll be reviewing what some critics have called the greatest action movie of all time, and then we'll be juxtaposing that to a movie that wasn't even considered good enough to get a wide box office release. To help me on this task today, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, before we get into the movies today, I have to ask, how are you doing? I know you packed up and shipped out of D.C. Uh, pretty pretty recently, not in the last couple days, so... Uh, for the more familiar environs of North Carolina, how did that move go? Uh, it was good, you know. It, it seems like just yesterday that I was on here talking about, oh, I'm here in, in D.C., I'm going to you know, change the government, I'm going to fix the government or whatever, I'm gonna keep the government from shutting down. And I will say that the government did not shut down uh, through the entirety, for the entirety of my time in D.C., so I think that that, it, that, that is attributed to, to my presence and my presence alone. Um but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it went by really fast, um, but I had a great summer uh, in D.C. Um, and ready to go. I'm back with year two of law school here starting in a couple weeks, um, you know, back in, back in the wonderful world of the Carolinas. Yeah, so what is, how does it feel to be a, a 2L? I know I asked you that right after you graduated from, from 1L, but are you, are you excited to be a 2L? Do you feel powerful now that you're a 2L? What, what's yeah. your feeling? I, I think that I will once school starts back and once I see all of like the scared one L's, you know, like I was last last year, you know, just terrified of what uh, what was coming for me. I think, it, you know, it'll be a little, you know, it, it, it'll be kind of like when you're in eighth grade and, you know, you've been you've been around the block for two years now in middle school and like you feel like you're running the show in middle school um, with all and all the uh, all the you know sixth and seventh graders are kind of. Uh, your playthings, I guess. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, once I get back, I think that I'll, I'll feel like, uh, you know, I, I know I've, I've been here before. I, I can act like I've been here before because I have. Um, so, so yeah. yeah, looking forward to that. You gotta put, you gotta put the fear of God into all the, all the one L's whenever the, whichever, oh, yeah. whichever one you meet first, they show you their schedule. They tell you who their professors are and you gotta be like, you just gotta apologize to them. It's the first thing you say. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it, it's funny because like that is exactly what some two L's and stuff did to me when I was a one L cause like, I remember people telling me like, we asked one of our TAs like the first week of, of school, like, you know, so what, you know, what do you do for fun? Like, what do you do when you're not doing law school? And she's like, well, you know, I usually have like a couple free hours every week. Okay. That was it. Just a couple free hours. <laughs> and she was like, and I go for a run usually. I'm like, Oh yes. So, so much fun. Um, but, and a lot of two L's I find, find, try to do that, try to uh, act like, you know, you're never going to have any free time. But if there are any rising one L's out there listening right now, uh, I just want to say that that's BS um, because yeah. you, you will have free time as long as you are 
uh, smart and efficient about the way that you get your work done. Yeah, and they'll have free time to come listen maybe to some some live tapings of our podcast or something like that. Oh yes, okay. yes, those are those are very soon on the horizon. Obviously, there we go. Yeah, li- live shows in the Wake Forest uh, Greenway. In the Wake Chapel. Yeah. Wake Chapel. Oh, oh, the Chapel, even better, even better. Yeah. All right. Well, as I've already mentioned, we're covering two more movies today, so why don't we get right down to the content our listeners came for, starting off with Mission Impossible Fallout. The sixth release in the Mission Impossible franchise and taking place two years after the events of the fifth movie, Rogue Nation, the organization known as The Syndicate has rebranded as a terrorist group called The Apostles, after their former leader Solomon Lane, played by Sean Harris, who reprises his role from Rogue Nation, was captured by Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt and his IMF team members. Hunt receives details of a new mission to intercept the sale of three plutonium cores that members of the Apostles are trying to purchase. When the interception mission goes awry and Hunt has to choose between the life of his team member Luther Stickle, played by Ving Rames, and the plutonium cores, Hunt chooses the latter. Sorry, Hunt chooses the former, not the latter, allowing the terrorist group to make off with the plutonium. <laughs> the remaining events of the movie follow Hunt, his IMF team members including Simon Pegg's Benji, CIA assassin August Walker, played by Superman himself, Henry Cavill, and a few other agents in their attempts to retrieve the plutonium and prevent a nuclear attack. Scott, we are both huge fans of this franchise, including uh, Christopher McQuarrie's fifth movie, Rogue Nation, when he reprises his directorial uh, role here. And when we saw the early reviews of this movie, even we were shook by how positive they were. And I just want to start by asking, do, do your impressions of this movie match up to the rest of the critical response that it's received? Uh, for the most part, yes. Um, and, and here's what I'll say, you know, as you, as you, as you stated, uh, you know, we were really excited going into this movie. I've been looking forward to it for months. Um, I, like, am a huge fan of this franchise, and, you know, I think that it was, we were at a point in this franchise where it's at an all-time high, which is not something you can really say about many franchises, um, when they're coming up to their sixth movie. And, you know, I was at the I was at the point where I thought, okay, if they turn out another movie like the last three, then this is going to be like the greatest action franchise at least of our lifetimes, uh, maybe ever, uh, in terms of consistency. Because I think if you look at the whole series, I mean, most people agree that Mission Impossible Two is the worst in the series, but if you compare that movie to you know the worst movie in some of the other big franchises, like Die Hard. Yeah, 007. Star Wars, if you compare it to Attack of the Clones, like, it is way above the worst movie in most of those other franchises. Um, Which is not to say that it's a good movie, but it's also not a bad movie. And the fact that that is the worst movie, and everyone considers that to be the worst movie in the series, I think says a lot for how high quality this series has been, even going back to the original film in 1996. Um, And and even the second movie had a 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, so again, it's not not like it's a... You said this, but to emphasize, it's not a bad movie. Exactly, and I think what makes the franchise so great and so consistently great is that there's always it's always reinventing itself, and I think I can we can mainly attribute that to the fact that there's been new directors in every single film except for this one. So this is the first time that a director has directed two movies in this series, Christopher McQuarrie. So like each director has brought really their own signature style to these movies so of course we had brian de palma directing the first one which was kind of you know the hitchcockian really suspenseful type thriller that he has become known for throughout his career you had john woo with mission impossible 2 you know you had the big hong kong style action scenes which john woo is known for number three you had jj abrams 
um, who really brought this sort of character development um, to Ethan Hunt that we hadn't seen before, you know, in the same way that he did with Star Wars and Star Trek. Yeah, and he did a great um, job with Philip Seymour Hoffman in that movie as well. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, you know, then you had Brad Bird with Ghost Protocol, and he brought this sort of visual creativity um, and wit that he's known for, for from, you know, his career directing animated movies like... Uh, like um, the Incredibles? The Incredibles, yeah. Sorry. Um, and so, you know, he... Every, every director in this series has really brought their own sort of signature style, which I think is why this series always feels so fresh. And I think what Christopher McQuarrie did so well in Rogue Nation and why Rogue Nation was probably my favorite in the series was that he combined everything that all of those other directors brought into one package um, that worked seamlessly well. Uh, you know, you had big action sequences like in Mission Impossible 2. You had suspense. You had, like, those huge stunts from Ghost Protocol. You know, you had that scene in the Opera House, um, and you had, uh, you know, the underwater um, sequence as well. Um, And then, you know, you also had sort of the Hitchcockian stuff. I mean, that Opera House sequence is also very Hitchcockian in nature. I mean, if you think about Hitchcock, like, one of his most famous set pieces is in in The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is a scene that takes place in an opera house. Um, So you have to think that, you know, that scene was at least a little bit inspired by Hitchcock, perhaps. So McQuarrie, what he did was he blended everything together so well. Um, and, you know, this time around, I think he tries to do the same thing. And I think he almost unequivocally succeeds in the same way that he did in Rogue Nation with a couple of caveats. And, you know, I, I just want to say that I don't I don't want to make it sound like I'm negative or even that I'm really criticizing this movie very strongly because I think this is... Uh, you know, the best blockbuster of the summer. I think it is a worthy entry in the series. And, you know, compared to most other action movies, like, it is way out of other most other action movies' leagues. Um, but I think that maybe what was missing for me in this one was some of the suspense uh, that I've gotten, in, at least in the last two movies, with, with how the stunt sequences are, are staged. Like, I... I don't think that I really got, you know, with the, with an exception, which I will talk about, I don't think that I really got, uh, you know, this feeling of, oh, man, how are they going to pull this off? Like, you know, there's not these sort of Rube Goldberg-y type stunt sequences that we've seen, particularly in the last two movies, where, you know, they're in the, they find themselves in this situation, Ethan and the whole team, and it's like, how are they going to get out of this? Like, there's no way. Um, and, you know, the fun of it is watching the creative um, and visually appealing ways that they find a way to get out of the situation. And I don't necessarily think we consistently got that in Fallout. Uh, like, you know, some of the major set pieces are like the, the motorcycle chase in Paris and the foot chase where Tom Cruise is jumping across buildings, of course, which is where he broke his leg. I think these are, you know, impeccably crafted action sequences. They're impeccably well staged. Like, you can't really find anything bad to say about the way that these action sequences are staged but there just wasn't the same creativity or the same um you know like i said this feeling of you know how are they going to get away with this because we've seen sequences like this in other action movies i mean we've seen motorcycle chases we've seen you know foot chases particularly in every other tom cruise movie um <laughs> yes. and and so you know i i was missing a little bit of that you know that 
panache that makes the series so fresh. But again, this is a very mild criticism for what I think is an extremely successful movie and does contain, in my opinion, one of the best action sequences that I've ever seen in a film in the last 25 to 30 minutes. Yeah, um, okay, yeah. With, I, I, was, I was wondering if I was going to... I was wondering if that was going to come up in your general impressions because all I hear all these things you're saying and I'm like, but the last half hour, though. yeah, exactly. And that's why I said there was one exception really to what I what I said, and that is that final sequence, which is pretty breathtaking. Yeah. Um, so let, let let's let's table that for a moment, and we yes. we will get to that. And I think that 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 will be something that we definitely spend some time talking about because it's it's absurd how how incredible that scene is. Um, but to your point, I think, I think that I, what you're saying mostly resonates with me. I, I think that my only, the only complaint that I can come up with in this movie, and I think that's, a, it's a little bit related to what you're saying here, although maybe not exactly the same, is there was a moment, and this is so petty of me to like complain about probably, but there's a moment in the movie where they have like two really long chase scenes back to back. They have, I think it, there was a car chase, so there's the motor, there's the motorbike chase scene. And then there's the car chase scene. And they're, like, really right next to each other. And there was, like, like the halfway through the car, like, the second scene, which is the car chase scene, I'm just like, all right, I feel like I've been watching the, the like, cars driving a circle around Paris for, like, yeah. 35 minutes now. Um, and I was just like, this is kind of long. Um, but that's my, like, that's pretty much, and, and I mean this in a totally positive way, like, it's pretty much the only complaint I can think, I can come up with for this yeah, movie. Yeah, I, I think... I think that speaks to how good the movie is. That oh, we're looking yeah. at really small things, really small critiques, and that like my major critique is, oh, it doesn't do this one thing that no other action movies actually do, except for like the last two movies. Yeah, in the series. he he doesn't climb the Burj Khalifa in this movie, so like that's yeah, a real he, disappointment. He <laughs> yeah. That does not happen. Uh, no, but it, it, to that point, and to maybe talk about some of the positives in this movie, I thought that the, I mean, I I wouldn't say that like. I mean, Mission Impossible, since J.J. Abrams, I think, is known for its characters. Or I wouldn't say it's the most famous thing it's for, it's, it's famous for, but sure. it does have strong characters. Like, I think that Benji is a very recognizable character for anyone who's familiar with the franchise. Ving Rhames is the only person besides Tom Cruise has been in every movie. That's uh, the first one, yeah. Yeah, so, so, yeah, he was in the first one, right? Yeah. Yes, he was. Yeah, yeah, he's been in all of them, uh, as yeah. Luther Stickle. And, you know, these performances were just what I expected them to be. They reminded me of all the things about the old movies that I really enjoyed. And then you also get performances like uh, Henry Cavill, who plays August Walker, who we'll talk about in a little bit, who I thought like he did an excellent job playing that role, in my opinion. I thought that Angela Bassett was a good addition. I thought that the return of Michelle Monaghan was really, was really fun, even if it was almost a cameo more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of, of course, in my opinion, what I actually think is the, the best supporting role in terms of like the, the acting, and, and I don't know if you agree with this, is Vanessa Kirby, who played White, oh, okay. White Widow, I thought did and really captivating job on screen she's only on screen for probably like 15 or 20 minutes but i thought she played that role the elusive sort of snaky almost uh black market dealer who will pretty much do anything to to make some money and keep herself out of trouble which i thought she played that role excellently and then you also oh go ahead i thought you were gonna say rebecca ferguson that's all i was gonna say but but yeah i agree vanessa kirby did a great yeah, I mean, I haven't mentioned Rebecca Ferguson's about the only person who I haven't mentioned yet. I mean, I guess Sean Harris that came up in the intro, yeah. but um, she was—I mean, she was fine. She was good. Uh, Wasn't—I don't think I—I I, I had actually forgotten that she was in Rogue Nation, which should tell you. Oh, much. really? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I—I I remembered her once uh-huh. once my memory was jogged, but I just—I think that more speaks to like, oh yeah, like she was in that movie. She was fine for me. I mean, maybe people disagree with me. I don't know, but uh, yeah, I really thought the cast was great. 
I mean, the plot is always absurd. It's a Mission Impossible movie. It's supposed to be an absurd plot, but the the execution of the plot is what you come is what you come for, and it, it doesn't disappoint in my opinion. And I hear what you're saying about maybe not reinventing itself as much as other movies, but I I still thought the action sequences, and we'll talk more about them later, were captivating. I thought Tom Cruise's stunts, as always, were authentic and real, as evidenced by the fact that he broke his leg during the filming of this movie. And um, as, as you, yeah, and he also learned, spent a year learning how to fly that helicopter in the, at the end. Yes, so and that's yeah. actually him flying the helicopter. It's crazy. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable. And yeah, then, like 56 I said, fifty-six years old. Yeah, fifty-six years old. You know, he, he, a man who continues to be able to crank out action movies like none other, and he really is. Uh, and maybe this is worth talking about right now, but I really think he is the the action icon of of this generation. Yeah, I mean, you know, if if you see it, if you if you follow my Twitter account or our show Twitter account, like I I'm, I won't hide the ball. Like Tom Cruise is my favorite actor, and uh, I think that you know exactly as you said, he is he is a, he is an action movie icon at this point. Like you look at his filmography, and you know it, it's almost. It, to some extent, it's a shame that he only does action movies now because he will never get awards consideration for doing those. Um, and he's never won an Oscar, which is completely blasphemous. Um, but, you know, it, you look at his filmography from the 80s and 90s, you know, when he wasn't doing as many action movies, when he was doing more serious movies, you know, and, and he was still, you know, incredible in all of those movies. He had multiple Oscar nominations. You know, he's in... You know, Rain Man, Born on the Fourth of July, Magnolia, you know, A Few Good Men, these movies which are, you know, all considered classics to this day. And then, you know, he's he's kind of, he really, you know, the Tom Cruise as an action star, you know, has kind of been an invention in the last 20 years or so. Like, it, he's really only become this action icon in the last 20 years or so. Um, but it feels like, you know, we've been with him forever because he's put out so many solidly entertaining action movies and not just... Uh, not just Mission Impossible movies. I mean, you look at uh, Edge of Tomorrow, you look at uh, something like, even like Night and Day, which he was mm-hmm. in with Cameron Diaz, was a fun movie. Um, American Made from last year. Um, yeah, you know, debatable whether that's an action movie, but it's, yeah, it's it, certainly it, okay. a drama. Fair, fair enough. Yeah. Um, I, I would, I, and to your point, I think I think that probably his action movie, uh, I mean, he was in Top Gun, which is kind of, I mean, that's an action movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he was in, of, of course, he was in the original Mission Impossible, but he really didn't yeah. become an action movie star until maybe even Mission Impossible 2 in 2000, and then he mm-hmm. had Minority Report and The Last Samurai and Collateral, like, all back-to-back-to-back, and then Mission Impossible 3, of course. Yeah, Minority Report, of course, yeah. yeah. But, but you know, and I think that what makes him so great, and that I was talking to my friend about this the other day, because he was asking me, like, you know, why do you think that he's so great as an action star? And, yes, it is his physical commitment, which I think adds a lot um, but I also just think it's his commitment as an actor that he is going to take these movies seriously, that he's going to take this, take his acting performance in this movie as seriously as if he was playing, you know, Ron Kovic in Born on the Fourth of July or, you know, somebody, yeah. in, his character in Rain Man. Um, and, you know, you don't see that from a lot of people who are in action movies. Yeah, I think the, the types of action stars you get are you either get someone who perhaps isn't the best actor but is a good physical presence, you know, thinking about, like, Vin Diesel, Sylvester Stallone, people like that, or you get someone who is known for their acting but who doesn't really commit as much because 
it's an action movie and you know they, they, you don't really come to action movies for the acting but Tom Cruise doesn't fit into either one of those categories um, and I think that it's you know a combination of his charisma but also just his intensity in, his, in this performance um, that you know it, it's not something that we really see from most action stars yeah. um, to I be would... able to bring that sort of those sort of chops and those sort of gravitas to a character and you know what is a blockbuster that you're going to see for the popcorn thrills and i think that's what makes him you know an icon a screen legend yeah um, the only person i can think of the only person i can think of who comes close to that for me in this generation is daniel craig uh and in his couple roles as as james bond and even that like to the extent that that is true and people i mean obviously that's up for debate but i would say i would argue that he leans less into the action roles than someone like Tom Cruise does. Not in terms of his commitment to the roles, but he just does fewer of them. He hasn't really become an... Like, yes, he, he's done the last four, or I guess is it five now, uh, James Bond movies, but yeah. he hasn't really done action movies really outside... I mean, there's a couple exceptions, but he hasn't really done many action movies outside of that. Yeah, and I even think that maybe Tom Cruise is better than him as an actor, although I agree that... No, I that, yeah, I, I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying Daniel Craig's the only person yeah. who I'd lump into that category. With Tom Cruise. Yeah, but he, he, you know, uh, you know, I guess to, to sum it up, even if you compare Tom Cruise like to, you know, if I'm thinking of action stars as people who sort of fall in the same league as Tom Cruise, I'm thinking of like Bruce Willis or Harrison Ford or even going back to like Sean Connery in the original James Bond movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I still think as an actor, Tom Cruise, you know, he bests all of them. Like he he has the chops that no one else really that we've seen in, in these types of action movies has. And, you know, I think it's it's a, pl- a pleasure for us to watch him uh, doing what he does best, which is these types of movies, and also running, which yep. he does a lot of in this movie yet again. He runs a lot. I was watching this movie with, with one of my friends, and he, like, whispers to me at the end of the scene where he's running across the rooftops, he's like, there's no way he can be running for this long in real life. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a, a, a point where I actually laughed out loud. Um, it was an unintentional uh, you know, laugh, but in the scene where he has had this heart-to-heart conversation with Michelle Monaghan, mm-hmm. and you know, they're, they're at this like camp or whatever where Michelle Monaghan and her new husband have been, yep. and they say their goodbyes or whatever. And like, he just runs off. Yeah, well, it's not even that. It's the way that the scene is shot because Ethan, you know, he says his goodbye or whatever, then he goes away. And the camera's, like, doing a close-up on Michelle Monaghan. And as it's closing, you know, zooming in on Michelle Monaghan's, like, face, in the background, like, 20 feet away, you just see him go sprinting by. And it's, like, so out of touch with, like, out of step with, like, the tone of the scene. But also, I was sitting there thinking at this exact moment in the film, I was like... Why does he need to be running right now? It just seems so unnecessary. But uh, yeah, it, it, they almost they almost make fun of the fact that he runs in every movie, but based on the amount of running that he has to do in this movie today. Yes, well, Tom Cruise is very fit, even though he's fifty six, and we can only hope that he has enough left in him to do another one of these movies because I want more yeah. of it. Um, but Absolutely. but but to dig in a little bit more to other people besides Tom Cruise, who does play Ethan Hunt in this movie. I'd like to talk a little bit about the supporting cast. I know I rattled off a lot of names here, but I'm thinking, of course, you have the IMF team members, which are, for the most part, that's Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg, who play Luther Stickle and Benji. And then you also have Rebecca Ferguson, who plays an MI6 agent, who was on the IMF team 
in the last movie. Uh, I'm actually forgetting the character's name right now, but Rebecca Ferguson Ilsa plays Faust. Ilsa Faust, that's right, yes, Ilsa Faust. And then uh, along for the ride, although it's hard to call him a team member, you do have Henry Cavill who plays August Walker. But I'd love for you to just to just give me your thoughts on on these supporting roles and the rest of the cast. Yeah, I mean, so I'll, t- I'll mention Rebecca Ferguson first because I did bring her up a moment ago. But I, for 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 me, one of the high points of Rogue Nation and one of the things which for me still makes Rogue Nation the best in the series um, is Rebecca Ferguson's performance as Elsa Faust. Um, I thought she was like a great foil for Tom Cruise's character. Um, and, you know, there's always these characters in all the Mission Impossible movies. There's these characters who are set up um, sort of as, oh, you know, are they hero or are they villain? Do we get it again in this movie? Um, but I thought that Rebecca Ferguson you know, gave the best performance that we've seen from someone like that. And, you know, her, her tete-a-tete with Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt was, you know, one of the, one of the high points of Rogue Nation, like I said. Mm-hmm. And I think that they kind of dialed that back a little bit in this movie, which Definitely. maybe is a, another mild criticism because she kind of fall she, she shows up, but she, like her role is more, she's a member of the team along with Benji and Luther and Ethan and I don't think that she really gets her moment to shine in this movie like she did in Rogue Nation until that final action sequence um, there's there's a bit involving her and Benji and like a, a house where um, you know they have one of the bad guys cornered um, yep. which is a great great addition to that sequence yep. and ve- very tense the helicopter um, stunts going on at the same time I thought that that you know that also that that um, you know, sort of subplot that was going on also added a lot to what makes that sequence so amazing. Um, but, you know, Henry Cavill, I think he does a good job as well. I mean, you know, I didn't really uh, hide the ball, but he um, he was kind of the character I was talking about with. You don't really know whether he's going to be hero or villain. And I like that they really contrast the approach that he takes to the missions with Ethan Hunt's. Like, he is sort of he's all about the results like he is going to do whatever it takes to uh you know get a good result even if that means you know maybe bending the, rule, bending the rules a little bit yep. um and he's like he's not going to deliberate and try to work out how exactly he's going to achieve the best solution like like ethan hunt does like ethan has become known for doing he's just going to act um like sort of on impulse um so i really like that the way that they set that character up and you know again i think that it's it's similar to how we we see the rebecca ferguson tom cruise you know sort of battle in uh, rogue nation um but and, and and you know this it kept me guessing too because you know I, i've seen a lot of people say that they they weren't really surprised about the reveal that happens with henry cavill's character but i was i mean i i, I you know, because this this series is so known for its duplicity and so known for people, you know, being not who they say they were, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure which way this character was going to come down. Um, and, and I was surprised when, you know, you get the reveal about this character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, but I think that that speaks too to Henry Cavill's performance. Um, I, I think he does a good job. And, you know, I'm not someone who has been a huge fan of him in the past because I hate those Superman movies. And when you say, you know, when you say Superman himself, Henry Cavill, I, I wince a little bit because I'm like, no, Christopher Reeve is still Superman. And, you know, 
no matter what. But um, sure. but I, you know, he 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 put in a good performance in this movie, and you know, I think the rest of the cast does their part as well. You know, Simon Pegg, Vin Graves, they all contribute what we've loved about them in the past. So I think it's a strong supporting cast. No, totally agree. I know I already talked about, it, so there's no need for me to to revisit this topic. But I I do agree with with pretty much everything you said. I thought. Henry Cavill is great. I know Alec Baldwin and Angela Bassett are on the screen for very long, but they're they're very authoritative and imposing characters, and so they they play their roles perfectly. They they, they hardly have to act probably because they're so assertive. Or at least I always perceive them as being very assertive in in these sorts of roles. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So why don't we just go ahead and move on to the, to the plot, to the action, to the stunts? I know that we will talk about that final climactic scene. Uh, where we, we, we've alluded to it already with the helicopters and, and that being the reinvention of or, or, or refreshing take on, on an action stunt for this movie. But were there any other moments you want to talk about? There's, you know, there's a, uh, several set pieces that involve Tom Cruise and Henry Cavill jumping out of a plane and getting struck by lightning. There's a, another one that's a bathroom fight scene that was heavily shown off in the trailers that I still thought was was a great scene. Uh, per, I mean, that was maybe just my personal take on it, but I was really captivated by that fight scene. There's, of course, the, the chase scenes, the, the numerous chase scenes. I think there's maybe three or four in total. And, and then, of course, the helicopter scene. Did any of them strike your fancy to talk about besides, I know we'll get to the helicopter scene. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that, you know, I've already talked about the chase sequences a little bit, and maybe my, my couple of reservations about those. Mm-hmm. But I think that the parachute scene is another good example of, I think, what, you know, what makes the franchise different. And I because I think that this that is an example of a scene where you have sort of a conventional type action sequence that you've seen in movies before. I mean, we've seen jumping out of plane sequences and James Bond and tons of other movies, but I think that they do some creative things to add, um, you know, a different dimension to the scene that we haven't seen before, whether it's getting struck by lightning or the, you know, the, the climax of this sequence where Tom Cruise, the, the way that he, um, shall we say he, he lands, Lands yeah. safely lands um, S- is safely creative. in quotation marks. Yeah, yeah, is uh, is creative. Like you know, there was that moment in that scene of I'm like, oh crap! Like you know, how's he gonna how's he gonna survive this? Like what? You know, it, it this does seem like an impossible mission. Um, you know, how's he gonna how's he gonna survive this? And I think that the way that he does is creative, and it's what I've come to appreciate from the series. And the bathroom fight again, I think that's an example of a scene. It's it's extremely well staged. It's you know kind of brutal to watch. Yeah, um, Christopher McQuarrie yeah. is is, I mean, between this and Rogue Nation, he knows how to stage an action sequence. Yeah, yeah, um, but I also think that you know it, it's you know it's more about the brute force of the action scene sequence it's not you know so much about the creativity or whatever and you know sure. maybe this just comes down to my personal preference and how i like the action sequences mm-hmm. um because I, I mean you know there's a healthy balance in this movie but i think that yeah. you know that scene while it was absorbing to watch and like you know, you know like i said kind of brutal to watch it, it didn't have that sort of flair that i'm used to from mission impossible action sequences which you know maybe you can't have that in every action sequence. So well, it's, it's at the same time, at the same time, I think it, I think it was a it was very intentional to have that kind yes. of action sequence as an introduction to exactly the kind of character Henry Cavill's right. August Walker is, and I and I that's one of the main. I mean, I it was an absorbing action sequence to watch for me. I agree that it was brutal, but one of the things that I like most about it is that you get exactly the kind of the kind of uh, impression of Henry Cavill's character that you were supposed to get out of it, and it's brutal. <laughs> And, you know, essentially relentless in, one, making sure that they get 
what they came for, and then two, like being able, you know, choosing to do whatever it takes to uh, to win the fight. Even <laughs> uh, there's a little bit of twist at the end of the fight that won't spoil about what happens, but um, yeah, you know, it, it's an absorbing sequence, and you really take away exactly what you're meant to take away. I think. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah, there's those sequences. We, we've talked about the chase scenes already. I think those are creative, uh, if not new. And why don't we just go ahead and jump into the helicopter sequence? I mean, this sequence is just unbelievable. I mean, it, it really does redeem the small trepidations that I had about the other action sequences in this movie with the way that it is staged. I mean, and it's it's not just, you know, that it's so well staged, but it's that it's it, it keeps upping the ante, really, in this scene to where, like, this just, there's this sustained suspense throughout the entire scene. Because, you know, of course, they start out and they're in, well, you know, they start out, first of all, Tom Cruise has to climb up, you know, on the rope and get into the helicopter, which is crazy enough. And, of and course, he falls that was the actually, first time. Yes, that was actually Tom Cruise doing that, of course. Um, and, you know, I think, that, again, I think that's what adds to this scene is that you can tell that there's really no CGI going on in this particular sequence. Um, but then, you know, he gets up in the helicopter um, and there's sort of a dogfight with the, with these helicopters. I will say the one... The one moment in this sequence, which I was like, crap, um, I wish they had done that better, was there's there's a maneuver that Tom Cruise tries when he's when he's uh, flying the helicopter to basically destroy Henry Cavill's plane or helicopter where he flies over it and tries to, like, drop his load on top of the helicopter and he misses. And I was like, oh, that would have been so satisfying, though, if, if the the load had hit his helicopter or whatever. It would have been so satisfying to watch. But I don't think that that really sticks with you because the rest of the sequence is so good. Because then, of course, they you know they crash the helicopters. They're sl- sliding down a mountain. Like Then they're hanging off the edge of the mountain. All, all while you have a, a, a bomb timer. you know, A nuclear bomb down, timer. <laughs> yes, ticking down towards the end. Everyone's life is at stake. Tom Cruise has to get this detonator, but also he's hanging on the edge of the mountain. But also Henry Cavill's hanging on the edge of the mountain, like trying to pull him down. And there's just so much going on at one time. But the movie pulls it off like so brilliantly to where you're, you know, it it does seem like the impossible mission. Like, yep. and you and combine I don't... that with the sequence that is going on between Rebecca Ferguson and Simon Pegg, which I think also has a great climax where you know we have Benji who's hanging by a rope and Rebecca Ferguson ha- ha- you know is, is trying to strangle the, the the man she's been fighting and there's like this five second moment where it's like which one does she you know she, she's forced to, to choose between like is Benji going to survive or it, it, you know if she takes her foot off this guy's throat or whatever then is he going to get back up and try to kill her and it's, it's, a, it's a great moment of suspense too like what's going to happen yeah, and I think that it, even in the even in the final moments where you know you know to not to not hide the ball like your the mission is supposed to be successful in these movies it, yes. it would be it would be a disappointment if the nuclear bomb went off but even in the final moments the final scene even after the the timer expires they try to disarm the bombs they shoot the last shot in such a way where wait is that a nuclear explosion going yeah. off in the back I I loved that I loved yeah. that moment. It, it, I mean, it, the whole thing just, I mean, it, it delivers exactly what you've come to expect from the mission. And, you know, Tom Cruise, I remember, you know, months ago when he was on the Graham Norton show and he was talking about this movie and he said, you know, there's a sequence in this movie that I've been trying for us to do for years. 
Um, and, you know, we finally did it in this one. And I think it's going to be like one of the greatest action sequences, you know, ever. And I think he's right. I mean, this, I, even, even thinking about like that Burj Khalifa sequence or the Opera House sequence from Rogue Nation or the, the, uh, the, the um, heist from the CIA in the very first Mission Impossible yeah. where he's hanging from the ceiling. Or the bridge uh, sequence in Mission Impossible 3 with the, yes. with the bombs. I think this one bests them all. You know, you might be right. I need to need to spend a little time going back and revisiting all the Mission Impossible movies because that's exactly what I felt walking away from this movie. Is like, wow, I want to go back and rewatch them all because yeah. these are even better than I remember. And I know that this might be the best one. I know, I know that you think this isn't the best one, and we'll get to that in a second. But um, the, you know, the quality of this movie is like, wow, these movies are even better than I remember mm-hmm. them being, and and they're just, it's a great, it's a great movie. It has cemented itself for me now as best action franchise of our lifetime of our generation maybe of all time just with how consistent it is yeah i mean the, i mean the biggest competitors right would be of our at least of our generation to be die hard and if you count that as our generation and and double and james bond right like i don't even know what other yeah. action franchises there would be i mean you know if you want to count like star wars indiana jones and stuff in there those two but i i think that you know like I said, the, the low points in Star Wars and in Indiana Jones are much lower than the low points in Crystal Skull. This series, yeah, yeah. Let's not even talk about that. Yeah, well, why don't, why don't we not talk about that? And why don't, why don't we just put this? I know I, I kind of alluded to this just now, but why don't we go ahead and zoom out maybe and talk about you know at a high level this franchise and you know it, where does this rank in your movies? I know we've talked about this off off mic already, and I and I know where you lie, but I want to I want to get you on record i want i want to hear your thoughts a little bit more fleshed out on this yeah so i mean i, I you know i think I, I think i've said really what i think it's you know it's the best at, um of our of our generation maybe of, of any generation um and but although i don't think this one is as good as rogue nation but uh, so i'll just i'll just throw out my rankings for sure. the series then yeah go for um it. because everyone has been Every critic that I've seen has been putting out their rankings, you know, sort of as a coda to their review of this movie. But, you know, I put I would put Rogue Nation at number one. I would put Ghost Protocol at number two. I'd put this movie at number three. Then I would put Mission Impossible 1, Mission Impossible 3, and Mission Impossible 2. All right. Why don't you go through that one more time for our listeners because uh, it was hard to follow there for a second. All right. Sorry if I was talking fast. No, uh, no, no. It's fine. Rogue Nation is my number one. Okay. Uh, you know, for all the reasons I, I talked about, I think Macquarie blends everything so well. At number two, I have Ghost Protocol. I think what Brad Bird brings to this movie is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, number three, I have Fallout um, for all the reasons I've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Number four, I have Mission Impossible, the original. Cool. Um, I love the suspense in this movie. I love how Brian De Palma directs it. He's one of my favorite directors. Um, and... I think it's a great introduction to the franchise and an introduction to Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt. Mm-hmm. At number five, I have Mission Impossible 3, which I still think is an amazing movie. Yeah. Like, I would put, I would give it four and a half stars out of five, probably. Uh, I think I did on my Letterboxd review. Uh, but, you know, just for... Uh, it, it's almost semantics at this point. Yeah, it's it's um, probably a better movie than the first Mission Impossible, but in terms of how you rank them in the series, the first right. one is, is... It holds more weight. And then, of course, at the end, I put Mission Impossible 2, not because it's a bad movie, but, you know, just because it, it pales a little bit in comparison yep. to some of the others. Yeah, I, I really want to see where I shake out on this as time passes. I mean, it's only been a week since I've seen this movie, 
But right now, I do think this is my favorite Mission Impossible. Um, and so the only difference between my rankings and yours is that I have this at number one, and then everything else, the order of everything else is the same. So I have Fallout, Rogue Nation, Ghost Protocol, the first, the Mission Impossible 1, 3, and then 2. Uh, yeah. yeah, so that, I want to see how that shakes out over time. I, I know that recency bias might be weighting Fallout higher uh, than, than Rogue Nation or, or Ghost Protocol, and because just because I saw it most recently. But I think that <laughs> Ghost Protocol and, and Rogue Nation are both incredible movies who, in any other action franchise, would be the best movie in the franchise. Yeah, of course. All right, so let's wrap up here. Favorite scene? I think. I mean, I imagine we're gonna have the same scene, but uh, we'll go ahead and get ourselves on 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 paper here on record. Yeah. Well, so since I mean the helicopter sequence is my favorite sequence, but I'll, I'll yeah. pinpoint another one which I like since we talked about that. Cool. Uh, one that we haven't talked about is uh, a sequence towards the beginning of the movie involving the you know the, the famous Mission Impossible face swapper yep. where they're trying to extract some information from a target mm-hmm. um, and while well, he's in the hospital and uh, the sequence involves Wolf Blitzer um, yes. and you know it, I, I didn't see the reveal coming and I think that the way you know the sequence is staged and the way Tom Cruise plays his role in this particular scene uh, part- you know especially um, makes this a really fun sequence in this movie. Yeah, I agree. That, that is a great sequence. We hadn't talked about it, and it's definitely worth mentioning. I'm glad you did. I think that, for me, I really like the scene. If we're talking, again, helicopter scene is the, is my favorite scene. But for for the sake of talking to something else, and since we I, we only briefly mentioned her, I think she, she deserves another mention. Of course, it's going to come from me since I mentioned her earlier. But uh, a sequence with Vanessa Kirby, I really liked the scene in the nightclub in Paris. I think it was a nightclub. I'm not even sure what it was. Gallery, nightclub. Who knows? Uh, there was a, a huge party there and they tom cruises ethan hunt goes and meets the white widow played by vanessa kirby and i think that the escape quote-unquote escape from that from that sequence and the, and the way tom cruise plays it uh, as well as vanessa kirby I, I think it's a it's a really nice sequence yeah all right give it a score scott what do you what are you giving mission impossible fallout 8.8 best action movie of the summer by far uh yep uh, unless you count deadpool too but well, I, again, I, I rated Deadpool on a different scale. Uh, sure, that's right. While I may have, while I may have rated it, you know, point two higher than this, I think this is a better movie. Yeah, and I, I also to 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 show my own cards here, I actually don't consider superhero movies uh, the same brand of action movie mm. as uh, as a Mission Impossible or a James Bond. I was talking to someone earlier this week about how I rated this the best action franchise uh, of the generation. He was like, "Oh, really? Better than like Marvel or?" the MCU and I was like I really don't think of MCU as an action franchise yeah. although I see where he's coming from but maybe that's a discussion for a different time. I agree uh-huh. this is this is a great movie. This is maybe this actually might be the highest rated the movie I've rated highest so far this year actually. Although I, I wouldn't say it's the best movie of the year. Uh, but I'm giving this a 9.2. Awesome. Cool. All right. So I think that should just about wrap up our discussion of Mission Impossible Fallout, what is certainly a superb action movie in one of the best action franchises. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing Timothy Chalamet's latest movie, Hot Summer Nights. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. We now go from action to, I think, romantic drama. This was classified as a thriller on Wikipedia, and I laughed at that, 
because I don't think it's that... a kind of coming of age movie. I would say. Sure. Okay. Romantic drama slash coming of age. Anyway, in the form of Hot Summer Nights. Set in the early 1990s and directed by Elijah Bynum, Hot Summer Nights follows the events of an awkward, out-of-place teenager named Danny, played by Timothy Chalamet, after he is sent by his mother to Cape Cod, or more specifically Hyannis, Massachusetts, to spend his summer with some extended family. Neither a local nor a rich summer visitor, Danny finds it hard to find his place in this new environment, but eventually finds a friend in Hunter Strawberry, the local hotshot weed dealer, played by Alex Rowe, and quickly finds himself wrapped up dealing drugs while inadvertently falling in love with Hunter's sister, Michaela, played by Maika Monroe. As Danny gets more caught up in both lives he's leading, the movie explores how he is able, or maybe unable, to keep disentangled all the different threads of his summer. All right, Scott, this movie was so disappointing at South by Southwest in 2017 that no one acquired the distribution rights until September of last year when A24 and DirecTV Cinema went out on a limb and picked it up, the former of which did not even have enough faith to give it a, theat- a full theatrical release in the U.S. before pushing it to iTunes. That being said, what did you think of this movie? Uh, I think I learned more from that plot description than I did from the whole movie, but, um, yeah, you know, I was, I was... I was still excited going into this movie because it's A24, it's a coming of age, and you know, here's what I'll say, as far as A24 goes, back in 2013, I watched a little movie called The Bling Ring, I don't know if you remember this movie, directed by Sofia Coppola, it was about uh, a group of teenagers who, it was a true story about a group of teenagers who robbed a bunch of wealthy celebrities' houses in Beverly Hills. Emma Watson's Um, in this movie, right? Emma Watson is in this movie, and I could not stand that movie. Um, and I did not think at that point that A24 was going to be like go on like an unbelievable hot streak after that. But ever since the Bling Ring, I've enjoyed every single one of their movies which I have watched, and I have watched almost all of them. Um, that is until this movie, um, which I think is terrible. And you know, originally when I to be fair to A24, they did not produce this movie. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, but still, you know, it was A24 coming of age. Micah Monroe, you know, I'm a huge fan of her. Um, I thought, you know, Emery Cohen also has a supporting role. He's good. Um, I thought, you know, this looks really good. It's a coming-of-age movie. I love those. And it's so bad. It's so Um, bad. It it really is. And, you know, when we were first texting about this movie, I told you that I thought it was just aggressively average. But honestly, the more that I've thought about this movie – the more I've gotten angry about it and the more I'm convinced that it is one of the worst movies that I've seen this year, um, it, every, everything is under, underdeveloped. Um, it is unbelievably cliche. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the, the, the ending of this movie in particular breaks so many rules in terms of what you're not supposed to do in a screenplay or in a novel or any type of, you know, fictional writing like it it this feels like the first draft of a film student's screenplay that he is convinced is going to be the next the graduate um and it it uh, fails in every way to you know match up to uh any coming of age movies really of of recent memory um and And even ones that you don't remember it doesn't live up to those either (laughs) um i think that you can't fault the actors too much because I think I mean particularly Michael Monroe I think does more with what does more with the character that she's given um, like I think that 
all of these characters are saddled with all of these actors are saddled with really cliche characters and really what we're doing is we're trying to watch, watch them try to make more out of the character than is on the page yeah. um, well, the, and, I will say one except one exception to uh, not this isn't an exception but one emphasis I want to put on this is that William Fitchner has like a five minute oh cameo gosh. that just put me on the floor <laughs> I hated it though it was so oh, bad like, God, it was he, terrible he he starts he's this ranting drug dealer and he goes off he you know he goes off on this long rant like he does something that you would hear out of a tarantino movie uh, almost and then at the end of it he says like what am i talking about and then he takes this pause and he's like i don't know and i'm like well there you go you just summed up the entire movie in a quote right there um but yeah i mean it it, it somehow spirals and gets worse as it goes on you know i actually thought in the beginning some of the scenes between Timothy Chalamet and Micah Monroe were all right. Like some of the first scenes where they're, you know, getting to know each other. I liked some of the dialogue that they had in these scenes, but I think then they try to build a whole movie out of that and it just spirals downhill really quickly. Um, until we get a, you know, the standing of a tropical storm, which that's one of the, you know, one of the things I was talking about, like literally in my, in my senior year fiction class or my, my teacher told us, here are like the three ways that you don't end a story and it's like everything is a dream there's a huge storm that destroys everything or everyone dies and this movie like sort of breaks two of them like you, you sort of have the trop- I mean you have a tropical storm ending and then you also sort of have that everyone dies ending. ah yeah 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 um well I don't know what more I have to add I think that the only thing we haven't discussed yet that displeases me greatly is the uh, is the voiceover narrator oh my gosh it was so it sounds like it sounded like ham from the sound sandlot was reading aloud from like a philip roth novel or something it was like it, it was like you gave a nine-year-old a book that it like he couldn't possibly understand of like uh, you know an adult that is that is clearly written for adults and like with really flowery prose and everything and saying here just read this and read this aloud and that's exactly like what the voiceover narration sounds like i mean the end of this movie it's like this little kid and he's he's going like uh what's this uh daniel knew that he loved the girl but he knew that to love her he had to leave her and i'm like what are you talking about like stop talking like you actually understand anything that you're saying right now you're like a nine-year-old kid and also the reveal of who this kid is that's narrating the movie like is so lame like, I, you know, I was expecting that we were going to get a reveal, like, oh, here's who this person has been the whole time. But, like, there's no payoff to it whatsoever. And that's the problem. There's no payoff at the end of this movie whatsoever. Like, there's, like, there's no resolution to the relationship between Timothy Chalamet and Michael Monroe. They both just, like, go their separate ways. Hunter just gets killed. Uh, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's a failure. Yeah, this movie is not good. Um, but you said that you can't really fault the actors too much, and I think it's probably now a good time to maybe talk about the actors a little bit. Why don't we start with uh, Danny, played by Timothy Chalamet? Well, I mean, I think this character, you know, it, it it's so underwritten. Like, you know, you like I said, I learned more from the plot description than from the actual movie, and what I mean is, like, his backstory as a character. Like, you know, at the beginning we see, like, his dad has died, I think, right? Um, yeah. And then, you know, his mom sends him off to Cape Cod, and he's like, "Oh, sending me away for the summer. What a cliche!" And and to talk about right. underdeveloped 
story arc. You don't get anything again about his mother, like ever. Yeah, it never comes up. His 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 family background, his personal background, never comes up once. This movie after the first five or ten minutes. Um, and he, yeah, but he he literally acknowledges what a cliche um, it is that his mom's sending him off to Cape Cod, but. You know, of course, acknowledging that's a cliche doesn't necessarily mean that you've surmounted the cliche. Um, I think this is a per- perfect example of that. It's step um, one, but not the full cycle. Yeah, but then, you know, I, I feel like, I, to be honest with you, I don't think his performance was that great either because I didn't mm-hmm. really believe his downward spiral into this life of crime. And, like, I didn't, you know, I didn't believe him during the point where he's like, oh, we're going to deal cocaine now. Um it, it all just, it, it wasn't consistent with what I knew about the character, which was very little, or, you know, with, with his performance either. And, like, along the same lines, to go on with his relationship with Mike Monroe, like, I, I never understood why she would fall for this character. Like, I don't, I, there was nothing about him to me that, like, made this relationship make sense. Because, you know, we get this whole hype up about both Michaela and, um, her brother Hunter, yep. um, and it's this stupid thing that I hate. Whenever uh, coming of age movies do this, yep. and they're like, they 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 tell who the character is by being like, oh, here's all these mythological stories that people tell about them, and it's like you have this montage of like random yokels from the town who are yeah. talking about like, oh, Hunter, you know, he beat this kid up because he spit his gum on the ground. Or, I heard then, he, you know, I heard he once killed a guy. Yeah, that's yeah. that's how it is. He's like, oh, I heard he once killed a guy, yeah. and then we did, we have the same thing with Michaela. Yeah. It's like, oh, I heard she slept with every guy in town or whatever. Like, you know, every every guy wants to get with her, and it's just like they're such they're not characters, they're types, and it's crazy to me that we're still seeing this in movies in 2018 because, like, you know, I, I was I kept thinking about Paper Towns, which is a very <laughs> underrated underrated movie in my opinion, and what it does in is that, that movie John is Green. It, is it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It completely deconstructs this idea, though, that that uh, Hot Summer Nights is leaning into. Like, we have this character of Margot in um, Paper Towns, played by Cara Delevingne, and there's that same setup for her. Um, you know, of oh, she's this mysterious person that you know. All, all we know about her is in these stories that, pe- that people whisper under their breath. That every guy wants to be with her, and every girl girl wants to be her, and. But then it proceeds in that movie to completely deconstruct that whole idea and be like, no, this is actually BS. Like, she's actually just a normal person. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what she, the sad part she, about this for, yeah. for, for this movie, to, for Hot Summer Nights, is that, honestly, I think this movie tries to deconstruct it and it just sucks at it. Yeah, I mean, well, I, you know, it's hard to know whether... Th- this is kind of what I'm getting at with Micah Monroe's performance. Um, I think that maybe she adds more to the character than is given on the page. I think maybe what you're getting of saying that, oh, it's trying to deconstruct it, I think that's maybe her saying, okay, I'm going to try to give this character some layers with my performance, because I think that she does have some nice scenes. Uh, there's yep. like a scene where they're sitting on the beach and she's talking about catching fireflies. Mm-hmm. Um, that's exa- that's and, exactly one of the scenes I'm thinking of. Yeah, and there's actually some, actually some like really nice dialogue Um because she's saying, like, oh, I used to catch fireflies, and, you know, and, and Timothy Sheldon's like, well, what happened? She's like, well, they all died. And he's like, well, I think you should start catching fireflies again. And she says, uh, like, some things aren't worth holding on to. And he's like, some things are. And I, like, that's a nice scene. Like, I like the dialogue in that scene. I think Micah Monroe sells her lines really well. But that moment is 
way too few and far between in this movie. Um, and yeah, I mean, maybe I think every, everyone will go on to do better things, except maybe Thomas Jane. His performance was just terrible. Um, he was her. He was the father, right? Yeah, he was the father of of, of hunt of Hunter's girlfriend. Is it yes, Amy? Another extremely un, un, under, underdeveloped subplot in this movie is the relationship between. Uh, Hunter and this girl, Amy. I mean, yeah, I think, yeah, played by Maya Mitchell. Yep. Like that. I mean, we don't we don't understand anything about why this relationship really happens. Uh, I don't think you understand anything about why that relationship happens. You don't understand anything, anything about her father and like the dynamic, all the different dynamics around his yeah. relationship with his daughter, his relationship with you know Hunter or even Tim or even um, Danny. Like you, you don't get anything. Like you you meet these different. There aren't even that many characters in the movie. You meet all of them. You are like, okay, they exist, but what's their deal? And you get, you just get nothing. It's, it's like extraordinary how little you get out of few characters in an hour and forty minutes, or however long this movie was. Yeah, um, that, there's just not enough on the page to uh, support, you know, this movie. Like it, it, it's so underdeveloped, it's so underwritten, and. You know, the, the talent involved can only do so much. Yeah, and to avoid being too repetitive, because I can, I can feel ourselves already just, like, returning yeah. to old criticisms, I, I, you, you've talked about Mike Monroe and how maybe she she tries to, to make up a little bit where maybe Timothy Chalamet had failed. I, I, we haven't really talked about Alex Rowe at all, who plays Hunter Strawberry. I don't know if you want to spend any time talking about him or if you just want to move on, but he's the, he's the third of this trio of, you know, if we, if we can call them main characters in this movie. He, he does, he's just doing a really bad James Dean impersonation. Like, that, that that's exactly the, what I thought, actually. <laughs> that's literally exactly yeah, what I thought. That was that was really my only uh, my only perception of this character. He, he's, you know, he's trying to be the rebel without a cause. Um, but he just can't sell it. I, I'm sorry to say, I, I don't know that he has the acting uh, chops to sell it, really. And instead, he just comes off as this, like, enigma, this, like, you know, enigmatic hunk who like has a has a violent streak and says the f word like every other word. Yep, sounds about right. All right, so let's move on to the plot then. Um, <laughs> I'd say we're going from one low to uh, a lower low, yeah. and I feel like I'd be pretty accurate. Um, where to start? Where to start? Okay, well, there's the premise of this movie, which I got into, <laughs> which I, I I really appreciated you were saying you learned more about this movie in my in my in my intro to to our discussion here. But yeah, I, I had to really say, I actually almost started uh, describing this movie as difficult to describe, and then just like doing a one sentence intro, and then I was like, no no no, I'll actually like time commit to like actually figuring out what this movie is about to lead into it. But that speaks so much to how maybe incomprehensible the the underlying narrative or, or plot or, or premise is of this movie and. And I don't know. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the drug thing wasn't really that interesting because I, I didn't like any of these characters, really, except for Mike Monroe's character. Which, by the way, I haven't pointed this out yet, but definitely the best thing in this movie is the fact that her character's name is Michaela Strawberry. Like, that is an incredible movie name. And I think it also perfectly sets up the type of character like that they want her to be of like this, you know, this, like I said before, this girl that every guy wants to be with and every girl wants to be. It's like, yeah, of course, it's Michaela Strawberry. Like, all you have to do is say her name and you're like, oh, yeah, like she's the one. Um, but yeah, as far as the plot, I mean, so the drug thing wasn't really invested in it because I wasn't invested in any of the characters, didn't even really particularly like some of the characters. Um, and I'm like, Timothy just stopped 
you know, stop screwing around with all this and just go be with, uh, you know, Michaela. Um, just go run away with her. Um, so I wasn't invested in that. And then, you know, we have the tropical storm, which happens, which, like I've talked about, how, how that's just like a foible of bad screenplays. But also it's just like it does that thing of like, oh, it, because it's raining outside, it makes everything happen that happens look really dramatic, like way more melodramatic than it needs to be. Um, like, you know, Timothy Chalamet, like, running through the rain to try and get to Micah Monroe's character or whatever at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and then, you know, they, like I said, there's really no payoff to what happens in the end. Like, they're, they're, like the relationship between Michaela and Daniel, there's, like, this diverging point where she discovers that... Um, that he and Hunter basically have been dealing drugs and she gets mad and drives away. This is like the very end of the movie too. Like this is like an hour, 20 minutes in. It's like there needs to be one more scene between them where they, where they determine, you know, this is how our relationship is going to be like, but we don't get that scene. And instead they both just like run away from home and go, go in separate directions. And it's just so unsatisfying. Um, so I think that everything in this movie is is very is a cliche. Yeah, and then even in the Except moments where the name Michaela and even in the moments where it tries to be a little bit more edgy, maybe because like I think this this movie is a pretty not edgy movie. It, it's like trying to be edgy and fails. And the and one of the moments where it like really tries to lean in and like grab your attention is this really brutal scene um, when they go up to Boston. Uh, when I say they, I mean Danny and and Hunter and where essentially Danny's trying to score some drugs to, to resell at this party. Yeah. And I think it's Dorchester. I'm not, I can't actually remember which, which suburb of Boston it is, but he goes into this house. He, he meets something his brother had, I know it's not his brother. It's, it's the guy's brother had, had one of his friends, brothers. He, he, he was going to hook him up with some drugs and all that he, well, he, he has this conversation with this guy. It's going very badly. He gets cornered. He looks like he might actually be about to get killed. Yeah, and, and Hunter just beats the crap out of him. And then Hunter pretty much beats this guy to death. He doesn't die. He ends up being okay, goes to the hospital, and lives. But it's just like a very uncomfortably brutal scene in a movie that had not... Like, it hadn't had that kind of edge to it. You don't see it coming. The only other time you see that brutal edge again in this movie is right at the very end, and you're just like, it just feels, like, everything in this movie feels out of place, which really is saying something, because that, that just means that this, like, nothing feels right about this movie, and that that's about all I can say. Yeah, I mean, it's like they want that scene to, to show that, oh, yeah, this character has a violent streak, but, like, that's all that it shows. Like, there's nothing underneath that, there's no other side, really, that we get to this character. I mean, they try to do that in one scene where he's in the car with Thomas Jane, um, but... Yeah that just comes off as really hackneyed and yeah i mean it, it does it ultimately says nothing about the character and you're right it's just a, a a moment of brutal violence which really stands out in the movie yep well uh i don't know how much more i even have to add to this movie i'd i'd ask you what your favorite scene is i'm sure you can come up with one but i don't know how difficult it's going to be yeah, I mean, you know, I like the name Michaela Strummer. Like I said, I think I'll just say that the peak comedy moment of this for me, and I don't mean this in a good way, but the moment where I just laughed and I was like, this movie is so, so, such, so cornball, uh, to the point where I almost enjoyed seeing it was 
where they meet up in the drugstore, um, Michaela and Daniel, and she has the lollipop. Of oh, yeah. She has the, she, of course she has the lollipop because, yeah. you know, that's what every heartthrob girl does in these movies. And she, like, is sucking on it, and then she, like, takes it out of her mouth and puts it in his mouth. Yep. And I was just like, why? Like, that, first of all, that's so unsanitary. And second of all, it's, like, it's not seductive at all. Like, it, you know, I, I feel like they wanted it to be, like, you know, really, like, this really, like, seductive moment between the two of them. But I'm like, no, she just put a sucker that has her spit all over it into your mouth. Like, that's not the same thing as making out. Well, there's, there's a lot of, like, weird spit-sharing metaphor. Not, it's not even a metaphor in this movie. There's, there's another one with the... I can't remember if it's the voiceover or just, like, another one of those random, like, mythical storytelling scenes that you described earlier where the guy said, like, had, like, picked picked her gum up off the underside of a desk. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and put it in his mouth, and that's the closest anyone... Or, like, that he had ever... Con- and then he, like, died, like, the next year or yeah. whatever. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that, that's, that was an interesting scene. My, my favorite part about that scene, just to add a little extra commentary to it, was, uh, and by favorite I mean more disturbing than I think what you even described, is he then proceeds, Timothy Chalamet proceeds to ask her if they can share another lollipop some other time, and I'm just like, oh yeah. my god. <laughs> Make it stop. Oh man, alright, my favorite scene from this movie, if I had to come up with one. There's like a couple, there's a couple nice scenes. In the middle, if you're talking about uh, Mike Monroe's character and, and maybe her chemistry slash relationship slash dynamic with Timothy Chalamet, they, you do get a couple scenes in which they have these touching moments. You described one of them already. Uh, there are a few of them that are nice, but it's really hard for me to come up with a scene that I liked in this movie because I that's I don't really like any of it to be honest. I'm not I'm not sure what there is for me. I I, I don't know. I, I almost like in terms of a, a black humor enjoy the final enjoy the final scene because it means the movie is over but um, that, that's about that's about all I got all right let's uh let's put yeah. a very low score on this if I don't say so myself um, I'll just say Mike Monroe please stay paid and Elijah Bynum please don't quit your day job uh, 3.0 <laughs> all right uh, <laughs> about sums up this movie i'm going even lower my lowest movie of the year so far 2.0 uh Oof. yeah real 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 really bombing out here even even the redeeming moments that you described in the first 20 minutes of the movie where you thought maybe this is going somewhere i didn't even feel that i think this yeah. movie this movie was a total train wreck from the start for me like the whole premise of it like him getting sent down to cape cod even like even from the opening moment with the voiceover narration where it's actually the final scene of the movie act at the very beginning I could already tell this this is going to be a disaster of a movie. Yeah, um, and like, why send him to Cape Cod? I still don't understand that either. It's like, if you're concerned about this kid, if you're worried, like, you know, about his emotional state or his psychological state or whatever, why are you just going to send him off to Cape Cod for a summer where, like, we don't really know who he's living with? It's not like she said, oh, it's okay, his you're going to live Yeah, it's like his aunt. Okay, okay, I didn't, I didn't get that much, but they, they don't even play any role in this movie whatsoever. No, it you, you literally like, never see them. In the movie. Yeah, it just seems like you're telling the kid, "Oh yeah, go have this like rule-free summer," um, you know, where you know, go have go have a summer out of a coming of age movie. Yep, uh, I mean it's completely unexplored. Uh, there could have been something there, but they chose not to go down that path. In fact, they chose down to go around down no path whatsoever. And yeah. you gave it a three I gave it a two point Let's let's put a let's put a period at the end of this sentence and never return to it. All right. <laughs> 
Well, I think that, like I said, that should wrap it up for Hot Summer Nights, hopefully forever. A movie that definitely isn't worth your time or money, in my opinion. Scott, I don't know. I, I usually try to tell people that I don't tell people never to go see a movie, but I don't think you should go see this movie. Um, there are pl- okay. special- Go ahead. I want you to support these actors because they're really good, yep. and they've all they've done good work. I mean, I'm talking about really about Timothy Chalamet, Mike Monroe. Mm-hmm. I mean, and Emery Cohen, who he has a really small role, but and William Fichtner. I like William Fichtner. Yeah, yeah, William, William Fichtner is good, and not in this movie, but yeah. <laughs> but but I you know I, I instead I would just say go watch you know It Follows or Lady Bird or you know a, a good movie that stars one of these actors. Call me by your name. Yeah, sure. Or uh, yeah, or uh, the guest. Yep. All right. Yeah. So I would say, well, uh, to, to to cap off my sentence and what I was well, the point I was driving to is that it's not worth your money when there are other plenty of other good movies out there, mm-hmm. either right now in the theaters uh, or like you have described other movies by these actors and actresses that are certainly worth seeing because this is not one of them. Speaking of which, quality movies, let's take another break, and when we return, we'll be quickly going over a couple other recent releases we've been watching that I will hazard a guess we like more than this one. Uh, before we dive into the movie trivia showdown and then wrap up with some news, we'll be back in a sec. Welcome back to part three of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Before we get into the schmodown this week, we do have a couple other movies the two of us have been watching. One a little bit more recent than the other, and that it was actually released this past weekend. But Scott, to start off with yours, uh, a little bit further into the history books, but still in 2018, you want to talk about a movie that came out earlier this year. Why don't we hear about that now? Yeah, so this is a movie called Gemini, which I actually has been on my radar for a little bit. I think I've talked about this on the show before, but... Uh, whenever I get the catalog from the London Film Festival every year about what's going to be playing at the festival, I always write down movies that look interesting to me and it's, keep an eye out for them in the future. And this is one of the movies that I wrote down from last year's catalog. It, you know, it played at some festivals last year, but it had a more theatrical release this year. Um, it, it, it still only played a limited release. I think it actually played here at my indie local indie theater here in Winston-Salem, but I never managed to go see it. But I saw it was streaming. Uh, earlier this week and decided it was time to catch up with it it's from a director named Aaron Katz and this is actually his third movie but his other two are are very small independent films I mean this is also an indie film it's a small film but it's you'd have to say it's his biggest film yet just because of the names which are involved Um, so we have Lola Kirk who stars as uh, Jill she's the personal assistant uh, to this Hollywood um star actress um, named Heather Anderson who's played by Zoe Kravitz um, and they have like a very they have a very good relationship um, as far as assistant and boss go but then a, a, a shocking crime happens um, pretty early on in the movie um, that complicates their relationship and um, basically Jill becomes tasked with uh, trying to solve uh the, the central crime. I'm trying to be a little uh, elusive here about what yeah. exactly happens. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's streaming. I pre- yeah, I appreciate that because it's streaming, so I'll actually probably see it. I imagine your, your recommendation is going to be pretty high here based on what you told me going into this, so I'll definitely watch it. 
Yeah, but so so Jill Lola Kirk's character kind of is investigating what happens, all while she's trying to dodge a police detective played by John Cho, um, <laughs> who is basically he thinks that uh, Jill is the one responsible for the crime. So she has to you know stay under the radar, trying to figure out what is actually going on, you know, while dodging this detective and all of the police officers that he's he's got looking for her and you know it's 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 kind of a mumblecore movie but it's also you know it's a suspenseful whodunit like there there are some legitimate moments of suspense in this movie um i think that it's beautifully shot uh you know that has been one of the main praises for this movie is the cinematography and i think that it earns that um, praise um it, it really uh really embodies this like glamorous uh, la lifestyle with the cinematography so very beautifully shot and i think that lola kirk in particular stands out in this cast um you know she's someone that i've enjoyed in the past and stuff like mistress america uh you know a, a few um seen a few episodes of the tv show that she was on on amazon called uh, mozart in the jungle um and i think that she gives a great performance here she really her performance really matches the tone of the movie and uh, in, in particular, when when the when the central crime happens and she discovers what crime has happened, um, there's this kind of like terrifying but brilliant moment um, where we see her reacting to what has happened, and it's like it's an ex- it's an extremely well done moment in her performance in this movie because you really do feel like you know she you really do feel the the fear and terror in you know the discovery that she's made. Um, so I, I think that her, her performance is, is really excellent. And yeah, this movie is super tight. It's only 93 minutes long, um, which you know that I appreciate. Um, and, you know, it's it's not for everyone because it, it, it is a little slow moving, I guess, for a whodunit. But I really enjoyed it. I was gripped by it. Um, and, you know, it's over after 93 minutes. So it's I find it hard to complain too much about this movie. And I give it a solid 8.0. I definitely recommend it um, for streaming watch. Also, no, I think, I mean, 8.0 is, is that's a great score, and I think anything in the 8 range is, is something that it, it's hard to pass up, you know, if you have the time to, yeah. to invest into it. It's a good score. Yeah, I, I'll probably take, give, it, give it a watch, especially, at, like you said, 90 minutes. I mean, I, I've watched episodes of Sherlock that are longer than that. So, uh, I was trying to think of some TV show. It's got to always be some BBC series that basically makes movies instead of episodes for their yeah. shows. But no, to, to your point... I. I think that I I am very open to watching anything that is under a hundred minutes because it feels like oh that's really not that much of a time commitment I can fit that in my schedule and a good cast as well absolutely yeah and my actually my only experience with Lola Kirk I think I, I haven't seen Mozart in the Jungle but I, she was in American Made last year she had a very small that's role right, yeah uh, and she was also if I'm remembering correctly she's in Gone Girl too isn't she maybe in a small part I don't remember. Yeah, I think it was a small role. But anyway, no, uh, I'm excited to see what she has has to put on display for a, a more leading role, because it sounds like you were a big fan. Yeah, definitely. Awesome, yeah, so that's Gemini streaming now. I'm assuming that's on Netflix, but I made an assumption there. Uh, it's not on Netflix. It is on Amazon. Well, you can purchase it on Amazon, I think, and, uh, and on iTunes as well. It's not free streaming anywhere, I don't think. Got it, got it, got it. But it's on, like, digital, digital release. Yeah. Got it. Well, I will probably check it out. This seems like a kind of movie. I think Neon distributed it. I was looking it up after you mentioned it. Um, it's the kind of movie that will probably hit streaming services. It's free, no, quote unquote free. Uh, you know, probably. Net- Netflix or Prime Instant Media. I-, I can imagine this hitting hitting streaming pretty early. Yeah. 
All right, yeah. Other other movie we wanted to talk about before we jumped over to uh, the movie trivia showdown this week is a recent release came out this past weekend. Uh, revisiting, so there's actually a movie about a similar topic. I think it was last year, although this was more it was more of a biopic than it was a, a revisiting of the action movie. And, and that the movie this year that I want to talk about now is is of course Christopher Robin, um, distributed by Disney, produced by Disney, made by Disney, a very a very Disney movie, and and you really get the full force of the nostalgia factor with this movie. Uh, la- the movie I was alluding to that came out last year was Goodbye Christopher Robin, which was a biopic about A.A. Milne and uh, his relationship with his son, who Christopher Robin is based off of. His, na- his son's name is Christopher Robin Milne, actually. And uh, I don't know how common it was known of for Winnie the Pooh fans that A.A. Milne's son was actually that character. But he, yeah, th- this movie stars Ewan McGregor, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi as Christopher Robin, who's a grown-up version of the child that we all know so well from the Winnie the Pooh stories it, we all watched on TV, maybe even read uh, the the children's books back in the day. Uh, he is all grown up in this movie, and he's played by Owen McGregor. His wife is played by Haley Atwell, who is uh, Peggy Carter uh, from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which was I really couldn't not see it. It was kind of a little bit disturbing to think about this this very like domestic woman who's really I can only think of as this uh, British spy from the MCU. Um, but nevertheless, a solid performance, a very austere performance I, I i think which is exactly what the role is asked for and also mark gaddis has a strong role in this movie who's mycroft holmes uh for those who are more familiar with sherlock even though I, I actually didn't even make that connection that i made a sherlock reference just a moment ago and mark gaddis is in this movie but again it's not super long it's only 100 minutes and it really it really hits nostalgia hard it's a live action movie so it's it's not animated you get the uh cgi'd winnie the pooh piglet uh eeyore tigger rue uh, owl, rabbit, all the characters, and they are absolutely adorable. These these uh, these animals are brought to life in a way that's a little bit unsettling when you first watch them, and then when they start talking, and y- even almost if you close your eyes, even you can you can really feel the 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 ch- your childhood rushing back to you. And I, I mean, Scott, I don't know if you were one of the Pooh fan when you were a kid, but I was. I mean, I wouldn't say that I that I know it super well or that. That's like the thing from my childhood that I remember the most because it's it, it's not if I'm being honest, but even even I really really appreciated uh, the slow methodical uh, drawl of Winnie the Pooh in a very measured tone. You have the energetic exuberant Tigger. You have kind of the the anxious frightened Piglet all the time, and, and then of course the infamous Er the gloomy dreary donkey who is never positive at any point in this movie. And honestly, Scott, it's absolutely adorable. Uh, Dial up the cute factor to 11, and they never never come down. The movie starts a little bit slow. It actually starts with a young Christopher Robin kind of going to boarding school and leaving behind the Hundred Acre Woods uh, where his friends, you know, Pooh, Piglet, Etc. are all are all there, and he's leaving them behind to go to boarding school, and then he grows up, and then the, it, it's a little bit slow to start in my mind. You don't really get the, I mean, you you meet all the characters immediately, right? All the all the Hundred Acre Wood, Woods characters in that moment, and I don't think I really felt much appreciation for them until they came back later on in the movie. And you know, he then grows up. He's this, you know, he survives the World War II because this is set in the forties, uh, at least the pre- I guess a little bit after the forties, probably the fifties, uh, when he's older, and 
he's now this businessman. He has adult responsibilities is the way he describes it. He has a family. Haley Atwell plays his wife. He has a daughter whose name is Madeline. And he's basically choosing his career over his family. And this movie is all about basically reminding us that there are some things more important in life than our jobs and our families are one of them and the things that make you happy are one of them. One of my biggest complaints about this movie is that it maybe is too on the nose. It's it leans it's too uh, heavy-handed in its message to the point where one of the final scenes is Christopher Robin and his family in the boardroom of the, of the company that he works for uh, and basically telling them to, Mark Gaddis is kind of the quote-unquote villain of this movie where he's like this he's Christopher Robin's boss and he basically orders him to work over the weekend when he was supposed to go on this vacation out to the countryside with his family where he grew up, where you know the Hundred Acre Woods essentially is. And he he has to stay and work over the weekend, and that's when he meets Pooh. Pooh comes to essentially <laughs> comes to, comes to save him, although not intentionally. Pooh never does anything intentionally, I don't think. And he he is reminded that there are parts of life that are more important than crunching the numbers and uh he he works in the department of efficiency in this company that's supposed to cut cost uh after world war ii um for the luggage company that he works for and then like i said the final one of these final scenes i thought was really heavy-handed was him and his family standing in this boardroom confronting mark gaddis's character and then the ceo of the company is a different character and telling them that there are more important things in life than you know slaving away essentially at your job and family is one of them. And as much as I appreciate that message, I also thought it, <laughs> there was no subtlety or nuance to it. Uh, that being said, this movie is not designed to be subtle or nuanced. This movie is designed to make you feel all the emotions of your childhood and really uh, enjoy moments that you have with these characters that you may not have had experiences with for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, depending on how old you are. And those moments are great. I think that these performances, the voice acting is spot on. Uh, some of the best voice acting that I've heard in terms of conjuring, even if it's not exactly what they sound like uh, in reality, if I went back and rewatched the Winnie the Pooh cartoon, uh, it's exactly what I remember them sounding like and that that's more important than anything. Uh, so I, I really adore this movie. It's, it's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, there are a couple other problems that I have with it, but they it is a movie totally worth watching, especially if you're a Winnie the Pooh fan. Uh, if you liked that as a child, I think you'd be remiss if you missed this movie. And so I'm giving it a 7.2. Yeah, I honestly was not a Winnie the Pooh kid. I have very, very little experience with Winnie the Pooh as a character at all. Um, but, you know, maybe this could be my introduction. It does sound like you enjoyed it. So Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it. Keep it on the radar. I enjoyed it, and I was pleasantly surprised by how full the theater was, to be honest. I really thought that Mission Impossible yeah. would still be blowing out the box office this weekend, but I was actually just looking at box office numbers, and right now Christopher Robin is tracking for a $25 million uh, opening weekend, which I think is very, solid, very impressive. Mission Impossible is still higher than it, but uh, yeah. much better than I thought it would do. Yeah, that's that's great for that. Awesome. So I think now it's time to switch over to the movie trivia on Scott, what would you like to talk about this week? Yeah, well, I think there's really only one place to go, and that is... Uh, well, you know, I think I think now it's it, it, the teams having been selected, this is possibly going to be one of the most entertaining storylines that the Schmodown has, has ever done, and that is that is the anarchy um, storyline that has been ongoing for for some months now with Mike Kalinowski acting as de facto commissioner, um, and it's finally you know really come to its its head come to a head with the anarchy team tournament where. Um, you know, 16 names were thrown into a hat and new teams were randomly drawn out 
um, that are going to compete in the Ultimate Schmodown yep. Team Tournament, which will begin in, on September 8th with Dan Merle um, at the at the final live event of 2018. Um, but, you know, there, there's... The, the, the draw for this tournament, the, the team selection, which happened on Friday, was, was really interesting to say the least, and there are some really juicy pairings. Um, so I want to you know, sort of break those down a little bit by asking you a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, uh, of all the 16 teams that were, that were drawn, which team do you think you'll be rooting for? Which team or teams, I should say? Yeah, uh, team or teams, good question. I think I, the one I'm going to be rooting for the most... I, I'm having a hard time still processing all of it. I I would have thought it would have been Ethan Irwin, but I'm not a huge fan of Janine. I like I like her. I, I like Jay, but I think if he was paired with someone else, it would have been a no-brainer for me to pull for that team. Though I'm not 100% sure still. I think that the team that I have to root for the most, of course, is uh, the two of my favorite characters in the Schmodown. I know that you're not as big a fan as of one of these characters as I am, but it has to be, if it happens, has to put an asterisk by this because it might not actually be a team, but yeah. Ra- Rachel Cushing and Andrew Guy... Uh, two of my favorite characters for totally different reasons uh, together I can't wait to see I just want to see their interactions with each other <laughs> as a team yeah, oh I, I know because it, it, it's like the ultimate face against the ultimate heel and I mean I, you know I should say that you know you, you noted that I don't like Andrew Guy's character and I, what I mean by that is I wouldn't ever root for Andrew Guy in a match just because of the way that his character is presented but I do yeah. still love the character that he plays I think he plays it extremely well mm-hmm. I think he's very essential to the showdown yep. but yeah you're right I, I, I can't find myself rooting yep. um, it's a- for this team just even though they do have racial just because yeah, well, I mean, we talked about this already. I was rooting for Andrew Guy in his match against Dan Merle. I love Andrew Guy. I love team action, uh, which is why I think my the ones I'm going to be rooting for most is either that team, which is managed, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, by um, oh wow, I'm blanking Robert Meyer Burnett, who's yes. managing them. So I have no I have no emotions that way because I have actually never even seen Robert Meyer Burnett play in like since I started watching because he hasn't been in a match since I started watching. Um, but the other the other team that I might be rooting for is, of course, the other team action team here: Ben right. Bateman and Mark Riley, managed by the legend himself, Tom Dagnino, uh, Tom Bobby Dagnino. Bobby Gucci. I saw this. I saw this uh, another matchup that surely was not random by any stretch of the imagination: uh, Riley and Bateman with Dagnino. I think that's that's a perfect setup for some storyline or some yeah, plot line. Especially when you consider we just had the storyline with oh, Riley's yep. dog getting swiped by Ben, by ben Bateman. Yep. Um, yeah, I think you're right to say that that pairing um, may have been a setup there. But, you know, I think that as far as who I'm going to be rooting for, yep. Mark, Riley, Mark Riley and Ben Bateman is a team that I definitely looked at um, with, you know, with also with Bobby Gucci managing them. Mm-hmm. I think they're probably second or third on my list of teams that I'm going to be rooting for. Okay. Obviously, obviously, Dan Merle and John Roca, you know, is, is a pretty powerhouse team. Two yep. very likable guys. Um, I mean, I they've got to be, they've got to be the, it, correct me if I'm wrong, they're, like, they're going to be the favorites, right? Like, Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, Mark Andreco, Jeff Snyder is a really strong team, and so is Clark Wolf and Drew McQueenie. If that ends up happening, I kind of uh, assume that the. I, unfortunately, I'm kind of assuming that the Shire Wolves teams won't be happening. Yeah. But I agree. I think McQueenie and, and Clark Wolf is a strong team. I would. I would say that I would be like Snyder and Andreco would have been the top of my list if not for Jeff Snyder's recent antics on the Schmodown. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but continue what you were saying. Yeah, uh, I will say that, that Snyder he was very audibly excited when. And oh Draco yeah, was pulled as his partner. That was know? hilarious. I loved yeah. that. That was a, that was amazing. <laughs> that the, was the, the audible reaction from the crowd where Jeff Snyder's like, "Yes, 
when he gets in yeah. Draco. But I think that the team which I'm going to be rooting for the most um, involves someone that I've really wanted to see get involved more with the Schmodown um, in the past. He's He's been in the Schmodown a couple times. He was in the first free-for-all um, and performed really well there. He played one team match uh, where he was defeated, but yeah, more more on, by fault of his partner, in my opinion, mm-hmm. than because of him. And that is Alonso Duralde, who is going to be teaming up with Matt Atchity from Rotten Tomatoes. And the reason which I, why I really am rooting for this team is because both of them are actually the hosts of What the Flick on YouTube, two of the hosts of What the Flick on YouTube, which is a, a great movie review um, show on YouTube that I watch every Friday. Um, and I, I've really enjoyed Alonzo's film criticism on that show for, for years. And, and Matt Ashley, you know, being the editor-in-chief of Rotten Tomatoes, obviously is great as well. Um, I've heard and, a good a good team name for this team is Rotten Flicks. Which, yeah, uh, that, that'd be good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think they're going to be uh, definitely a team to watch. You know, people might not be as familiar with Alonzo, but he's very knowledgeable and I think that I think that they could could definitely make some noise, but sort of along the same lines. I want to know next: who do you think it could be a sleeper team, a team that maybe on on its face doesn't appear to be formidable, but could actually upset some people? Because of course, you know, the Ultimate Showdown is all about the upsets. We saw that in the singles tournament last year. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, it's hard for me. I, th- I think there are some cl- there there to, to me there are some teams that are clearly not, uh, not like are not that great. Can't I? And unfortunately, I think for, I hope for Brienne's sake that she doesn't end up, uh, or she ends yeah, up winning Devon this because Stewart. I think she has absolutely no chance with Devon Stewart, for example. I think that th- I think this is so. This is my deeper dark horse. I think than than I'll, I'll pick up maybe a, a more sensible dark horse here in a second. But I think a really interesting pairing is Haley Fouch and Eric Zipper. I yeah. think that these two are. More knowledgeable than they get credit for. I think both of these... So these are both newcomers to the league this year, if I'm not mistaken. And I think mm-hmm. that uh, in each of their pairings, they are the stronger of the two, in my opinion. Yes. And, I, and especially for Haley Fouch, who... Uh, she had a match. She's part a member of the Scream Queens, or formerly a member of the Scream Queens, Scream Queens, I should say. And I think that she is so much stronger than her partner, whose name escapes me right now. She had a... She's had... I think she's she's played two matches, I believe. I think it's Kaylin or Caitlin. Something like yeah. that, yeah. And she scored like, I think, she, uh, and her most recent one, she had seven seven points in the opening round, and the one before she had six points. She's a very strong competitor. She's crushed her second rounds in both matches. Um, we haven't seen too much from the third round because they haven't had to go too deep there. But I think also Eric Zipper is a very formidable uh, competitor, and I think that could be a really strong team. So that that's a, maybe a, 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 a deep sleeper on on the team on the team side. It really could make some waves, and on paper might. Uh, go unnoticed. I mean, in some ways, you could even say Kalinowski and Chance Ellison are, yeah. might might be sleepers in that sense. We'll see. I, I don't think we know enough about Chance Ellison to say to say that. And 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 Mike is so hit and miss to me sometimes, especially outside yeah. the inner geekdom. You never really can say for sure. But a more a more sensible sleeper team for me, I think that that could go a little bit further is exactly the team that that you've described earlier with Alonzo Duralde and Matt Atchity. I think on paper, this team gets passed over uh, as one of the top competitors. But in reality, like, I mean, MODOK has been around the top. Uh, uh, Matt Atchity, a former member of MODOK with uh, uh, Dra- Dra- Gray Drake. Yeah, Gray Drake. Uh, and, you know, they've been they've, in yeah, the... they've been in the showdown since the very first team tournament. 
Absolutely, and they've been a force in the tournament. Like they have, they've never won the belts, but they've always been around almost the number. They almost beat the Patriots. They've been around the number one contender spot for years, and you know, it just depends on whether whether well, I mean, Matt Atchity has his on days, he has his off days, but it'll depend on what what version of Alonzo Duralde shows up. And then one last uh, team to plug here hasn't been mentioned yet. I think that Lon Harris and JTE, if you yeah, definitely. could could be sleepers as well. Lon Harris, I think, is an underrated competitor. He's uh, um, his match with Ethan Irwin, if not one of the, I mean, definitely one of the better matches this year. Definitely, we had a lot of incredible matches this year. But just in terms of sheer trivia knowledge, that's one of the most impressive matches we've seen this year. And it's only because of Ethan Irwin did Lon Harris not come out on top because he Ethan Irwin was just a, a machine in that match. And then JTE, he's a legend. He's a legend in the Schmodown. But I think you know when you break up JTE and Snyder that neither of them really feel as formidable as they are together. The, the Patriots were more than the sum of their parts, I think many would say. And so it'll be interesting to see what this team has, has to show when the, when the tournament starts. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think those are all good teams that you pointed out. You know, I think especially Juan and JTE. I mean, JTE, he is the ultimate hit-or-miss player. You know, talk about people being hit-or-miss players. And to the point where I think his record is like right at 500, despite the fact that he's played like 20 singles matches or something. But, um, but I mean, when he is on, he is he is at the top of this league in terms of movie trivia knowledge. And you know, we've already seen what Lon Harris can do. Um, you know, as you said, his only loss is to um, is to you know Ethan Irwin, who may have the title belt here pretty soon. So, not no shame in that loss either, especially the way Lon played in that match. Mm-hmm. But the team which I'm going to point to as uh, my sleeper pick and I, as soon as I saw this team I thought mm, that's a team to watch right there yep. uh, Mark Edward Huke mm-hmm. and Whitney Seibold um, which I, I, they've, already, they've already been dubbed Beauty and the Geek which I think is a perfect name because Whitney's nickname is of course the Beauty and uh, Mark Edward Huke has never played in the Schmodown but he is known for being the movie geek on Beat the Geeks um, which is a game show I want to say it's from Australia or the UK um Maybe Canada, I'm not sure. Um, but I don't think it's American. Maybe it is. Um, or it's based on a show from somewhere else. But, uh, you know, basically they have average people coming on and competing against quote-unquote experts in um, a particular subject. So there's like, you know, TV, music, everything, you know, you can think of in terms of trivia. And Mark Edward Huke was the movie geek um, for, for an amount of time on the show Meet the Geeks. Um, you know, I think the, and, and, you know, Whitney Steibold, we've seen what he can do. Uh, you know, we've, we've never seen him play in a singles match. Um, but I think in the critically acclaimed matches with Bibbs, um, we've seen that he is on the level. If he ever tried to go into the singles division, I think he would be, um, definitely a, a challenger for titles. Um, mm-hmm. and so I think if Mark Edward Hugh can adjust to the showdown format pretty seamlessly, uh, and this is a team with a lot of knowledge that could could pull off some upsets. Yeah, I saw you tweet about this team being your being one to watch. So that's I, I tried to steer away from it. In my conversations, to, yeah, to let you watch because I think you have a lot more to say about this team. I agree, Whitney. It's I've always been intrigued why Whitney's not around the showdown more. I don't know if it's just that he doesn't live in LA. I'm not 100 percent sure. He works at IGN, so they might keep him pretty busy there. That's like, true. Does he does he work for IGN or does he freelance for IGN? I've always wondered this. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I take your point. He probably does stay pretty busy, um, but very knowledgeable. I've actually really enjoyed his writing on movies when I've read it, and uh, no, he's this is definitely a team to watch. I totally agree. Okay, final question. 
who are you taking to win it all? This is a tough question, I know, because this this uh, these teams are pretty loaded. It's hard to say how the teams are going to you know mesh together when since none of them have played together except for the Wild Berries, of course. Um, so yeah, who knows? Maybe the Wild Berries will take it all. Um, but who, who do you think at the end of the day will be facing off against either the Shire Wolves or Brianna and Mystery Partner for the team title at the Spectacular? Yeah, so part of it is I, I do think that Drew McQueenie and Clark Wolf would have a really good chance of being in that yeah. conversation. But I, that, of course, has an asterisk because Clark Wolf could automatically be in that title match if the Shire Wolves do prevail in the, in the right. upcoming title match. So I'm going to steer away from, from choosing that as my prediction. Instead, I'm going to I'm gonna stray away because I, I don't think Roka and Merle are going to do it. I think that they, they are the sensible pick, but they're not going to be my pick. Um, for me, it's, it's coming down to... Uh, I wish I, I wish I had more faith in Mark Riley because if I did, I could say I, I would think that he and Bateman could go really deep if not win this. I just don't know how sharp he is anymore for the Schmodown. Uh, I could be selling selling him short here. He could be still really sharp and, re- and ready to go. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Jeff Snyder and Mark Andrego. I think that they could really pull it off. I think that if Jeff Snyder doesn't throw in the towel and halfway through round one in one of his matches, I think that they really could go. Deep because Andrenko's knowledge is weirdly very robust, and, and Snyder's is too. And I think that they really, I really do think they complement each other's strengths pretty well. And you know, if their knowledge is wide enough, and if Snyder doesn't ever give up in a match, I think that they really could go deep. They could even go all the way. Yeah. So here's what I'll say. I think that Cl- my pick would be, assuming that she you know, loses the title match, my pick would be Clark Wolf and Drew McQueenie. Yeah, mine would be um, too. However. I'm with you. I think Jeff Snyder and Mark Andreco uh, is going to be the team to beat. I mean, you have a guy in Jeff Snyder who we've seen. He plays extremely well in the team division. I mean, he's part of the Patriots, greatest team of all time in the showdown. Um, and he knows what it's like to win the title and defend the title. Um, and, you know, you have Mark Andreco who is a very strong singles player and I think is just trying to find his niche really in the showdown. You know, he's bounced around a lot with, he started out in the Lions then, of course, then now he seems to found a little bit of a home with the Fife Club, but now, you know, he's being forced to team up with a heel and Jeff Snyder. Um, but I think, you know, to spoil the exhibition match a little bit, that was on that was posted on Patreon. We had a five-way match between Bibiani, Cushing, Roca, Sam Levine, and Andreco. And Andreco ended up in the final two, taking that match to sudden death against Bibiani. Uh, so you know he's shown what he can do against the the best competitors in this league. Yep. Um, and I think when teamed up with a guy in Jeff Snyder who has been there before, uh, it's definitely a team the team to beat for me. You know, I mean, proof's in the pudding right there. I think we, it's a strong team. We both feel that way. We'll see how wrong we are if they lose out in the first round. But uh, I think that they've, I think they've got a, as good a shot as any if they both show up. And, you know, of course, there's always there's always some element of luck in the showdown, especially with the wheel yeah. and the numbers in the third round. Uh, we'll see if luck is favors them a little bit or it was at least comes out even because I think if on a level playing field, these guys can, can go all the way. And I, don't, and I also want to say that I don't think you should sleep on Ethan Irwin and Janine either because... I don't think so either. You know, I agree. You think Janine, where she struggled in the past is rounds two and three. Well, round two, she'll have Ethan's help for every question. And round three, she's at most only going to have to answer one question on her own. Yep. Um, so I think that they are also a team which could go all the way. I think that's a really good point. I thought about picking them as well, but I just... 
you make a really good argument because the reason that I discounted them a little bit was because of she, I yeah. mean, she absolutely fell apart in that three way at the collision. Um, but you're right, she has Ethan Irwin who <laughs> the guy does not crumble under pressure. Knows everything, yes. Yep. Although, you know, Jay Washington I think he's cursed as a manager, so we'll see if that has any effect. Um but yeah. yeah. I, I thought it was interesting that he was managing that team. I, I wonder if there's like some weird thing with with that that can't have been by chance, right? So yeah, I mean, you would think since he's managing Janine again, but we'll see. Does that mean Ethan Irwin's a member of the Viper Squad now? Only time oh will tell. That would be something. That that would be a real twist. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think to, that should just about do it for our movie trivia showdown discussion, and I think that will mean we'll, we'll segue now into our news roundup. I think that we'll keep this news roundup a bit shorter than some of our past ones. Not as much going on post San Diego Comic Con, which was two weeks ago, right right before our last episode, but. Something that, that did kind of come out of San Diego Comic-Con that we didn't talk about, because uh, I think it came out a couple of days after Comic-Con, but that the Joker movie, which we did talk about with Joaquin Phoenix, and did get a release date of, you know, fall of next year. The Joker movie has added Robert De Niro and Zazie Beetz uh, to the cast, which I think is really cool. Obviously, Robert De Niro is very well known, but Zazie Beetz played, uh, oh, I think it's, I can't remember the name of the character, but she was in Deadpool 2. I can't too. either, yeah. yeah Deadpool she was the, the luck character in, in Deadpool 2. I can't believe I've forgotten the name of that. Domino. Domino is her name. Yes, uh, yes. She played Domino in Deadpool 2, and I I really enjoyed her in that movie, so I'm really looking forward for her being in the Joker movie, and I'm trying to think about what character she could possibly play, because I'm assuming she's not going to play Harley Quinn, but maybe she will. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, maybe she'll play a, a good guy or something. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. But yeah, Rob, Robert De Niro, I'm not quite sure how that character's going to fit in, but I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah. Another another kind of movie making news it also related to Deadpool Two is the fact David Leitch, who's the director of Deadpool Two, is uh, making a remake. That's terrible English. I'm sorry. Of Enter the Dragon. He's remaking okay. Enter the Dragon. Yep. So I I don't know if there's much more to that story right now than that, but David Leitch, who directed Deadpool Two, is will be at the helm of this Enter the Dragon remake. In, cool. in sadder news, uh, I mean, not too sad, but just kind of disappointing in that this movie must not be very good, that Mowgli, which is produced and put together and directed by Andy Serkis as a follow-up to the live-action Jungle Book movie Jungle Book, yeah. from Disney from a few years ago, has been kind of, uh, it's been it's been sidelined to Netflix. It's not even going to get a theatrical release. Uh, Disney is putting it direct to Netflix when it, when it finally finishes up, and so... Clearly, this is not tested well with Disney's uh, whatever whatever metrics Disney uses, whether whatever screens Disney has had of this movie, it has not been good, and they don't feel like it's worth investing the money to make it better, and so they're just going to put it on Netflix. Yeah, I mean, I saw the trailers. I saw some trailers for it, um, like before a couple movies this year. But yeah, it's definitely not anything that caught my eye. Yeah, I mean, there's so many live action Disney movies being made right yeah. now. To uh, I, I, I'm not going to say that this movie is going to be really bad if it's going direct to Netflix, but the amount of money that Disney regularly puts behind movies, granted it makes a ton of money off of these movies, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm sure that they are very cautious about what they put out there because they have so many movies in the works that they really don't want to put a bad one out there and really sour people on their live action franchises. So I think it's probably a safe play for them to put to silo this to Netflix, um, yeah. especially with you know their, uh, there's a live action Aladdin in the works, there's a live action The Lion King, and these are huge releases that they don't want some like really you know I hate to say this but like negligible follow up to one of their lesser I mean Jungle Book is a very popular movie back in the day but it's lesser 
it's of lesser popularity than movies like Aladdin and Lion King, and they really exactly. they really wouldn't want to risk the box office success of those with a bad with a bad follow up to that movie. Sure. Also, in, in follow up news of, of sorts, Patrick Stewart is set to return to his role of is it Jean Luc Picard? I can't remember his character's yes, name from Jean-Luc Star Trek. Picard, yeah, in yeah, a, a new Star Trek series that will be coming out at some point in the future. I thought this was a really interesting news, guys. I don't I don't think either of us are huge Star Trek fans. Neither of us is really. Uh, gone all in on this franchise. It's hard to speak too much to this, but this is this was interesting news in my mind. I'm I'm surprised that Patrick Stewart would commit to any sort of TV show at this point in his life, but uh, he's doing it. Yeah, I don't know much other than that. Team Trek's own Scott Mance was very excited about this. News. Yeah, I, I saw that on Twitter. I'm kind of assuming this isn't that big of a role, but I could be wrong. Yeah, we'll see. And last we'll thing see. that I want to talk about because I think this might be something that we spend a few more minutes on than we normally do, especially one anything we've done so far on this news roundup section this week, is that movie passes on death's door at this oh. point. Uh, you want to start? Yeah. Because, because yeah. Uh, to, to, not, to, not bury, to not bury the lead whatsoever, I actually dropped movie pass uh, about, a, about this, this time a month ago for AMC's A-List subscription, which is their kind of response to movie pass. It's twice as expensive as movie pass was. I know that the... the, the Monetization of movie passes is changing quite rapidly at this point, so it's hard to say what whether whether AMC's A list is different now than is, is that different now than Movie Pass in terms of what it what it costs. But it's twenty dollars a month. AMC's is, but it covers all sh- like any. There's no restrictions on the movies you see. You get to see you get to see three movies per week, uh, and a week is Friday to Thursday, and you can uh, you can even that includes premium screenings. And I joined when I saw this announced. I immediately switched over to this because I was seeing IMAX movies even with my Movie Pass subscription, which meant that I was buying an IMAX movie ticket whenever I wanted to see that, which already means that I was paying more than twenty bucks a month. So I just switched over to it because I only go to AMC theaters. I told you about this, and I know that for a while you weren't tempted because you described to me like, "Oh, I don't really go to AMC ever, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. But recently, you told me that you actually also switched to AMC's A list, and that's because Movie Pass. Since I have left Movie Pass in early July, it's really gone to shambles. Yeah, they literally ran out of money, like, and on on one Thursday, a couple Thursdays ago, and, I, you know, I was planning on seeing Mission Impossible fall out the next day, so mm-hmm. I was like, this is, I guess this is a sign I need to switch, yep. and, you know, as you've described it, it does have some drawbacks, um, namely, you know, it being more expensive, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that you can only use it at AMC theaters, which I do have an AMC theater near me in Winston-Salem, but there's only one. And also, um, you know, I like to go to the independent theater here as well because it gets movies that the other theaters don't. Um, so I would I would actually have to pay for that now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a drawback. But I do, I mean, you know, I don't see the IMAX movies, so that's not a huge plus for me. But I do, um, I do uh, like the element of that you can do e-ticketing and like just yeah. buying a ticket. For that's big for me. Mission Impossible Fallout was huge because that was my one complaint with Movie Pass. When I was when I had it was, you know that you have to be within 500 feet of the theater or whatever, and you know on the weekends and stuff the movies sell out. So basically, I was having to get there at five o'clock and then buy a ticket for the nine o'clock showing or whatever, then go home for a little bit and then come back, which was kind of a hassle. So. Yeah, very. That that is something that's very annoying. I've had that happen to me when I was a member of Movie Pass before. I'd have to go to the theater, buy a ticket for a later screen, and then go about my day and then come back, which you know. In some ways, it's only a minor inconvenience, but still, it, if you can e-ticket, it's so much easier. And I know that, for me, the way that I logic this out, obviously, it's, we don't want to, as people who see, 
you know, we've each seen over 30 movies this year already. We see a lot of movies. We spend a lot of money on movies. We, we're not trying to pay 10 to $15 for every movie we see because that, that adds up over time. But that being said, if you are going to pay to see movies, in my mind, because I'm actually in the same boat because the indie movie theater near me also is is not an AMC because AMC would never really have a dedicated independent movie theater. But I'm much more okay with paying for a full price movie ticket for indie movies than I am for Mission Impossible Fallout because I know that the negotiated rates that MoviePass pays for indie movies is super low and I'd much rather have my full price ticket going to indie movies like movies like uh, you know Three Identical Strangers is one that eighth I, grade, yeah. yeah eighth grade things like that I'd much rather my my ten to fifteen dollars on a movie ticket go to that and then use my you know monthly subscription. Uh, theater movie theater you know pass on movies like Mission Impossible Fallout which are making millions if not billions yeah. of dollars and you know I justify it more that way that again I don't I don't it, it's tough if you're paying ten to fifteen dollars once or twice a week regardless and so it, you know as much as you can stream on that it, it makes sense but if if you have to if you have to choose one for me it makes more sense to pay money for the indie movie theaters than it, the indie movies than it does for the bo- big box office releases I definitely agree. Yeah, so MoviePass is, is pretty much, uh, like you said, they, they had to get an emergency loan of about $6 million last week uh, around the Mission Impossible Fallout release, and they their monetization structure is quickly falling apart because, no, to no surprise, their 3 million-plus members all went to go see the biggest releases on opening weekend, and the negotiated rate for Mission Impossible Fallout that they have with AMC, with Regal, with all the big movie theaters, Landmark, whatever it is, is not going to be like two or three bucks per ticket, which is probably the structure that they have with like these secondary releases. Like, like for example, Eighth Grade, I'm sure that they're only paying two or three dollars per ticket for people who go see it, if not less, to AMC, to Regal. But for Fallout on Friday night or Saturday night on an opening weekend, there's no way they're not paying close to full price to AMC uh, for, to, and to Regal for those tickets, and that just bankrupted them pretty much. And we'll see if they recover. I've seen a lot of interesting ideas about how MoviePass should actually be monetized and how that actually should be structured, particularly around basically not letting you see a movie on opening, not letting you see a mainstream release on opening weekend. Like, MoviePass should be designed for people to see more obscure movies, for people to see movies that otherwise might get missed. Because the whole point of it is to incentivize people to go to the movies, not to see Mission Impossible Fallout or not to see Infinity War. Not necessarily for people to save money going to the movies, but for people to to be incentivized for it to be cheaper for them to see movies they otherwise wouldn't see. And uh, that's a really compelling argument. I, the problem is that I think that they might have so much ill will that they might not be able to rebrand into that now. Uh, and so that's really it's really unfortunate because in an ideal world, I think the, the what, what makes them a sustainable business model, I think, is for, for everyone involved, right, for AMC, for Regal, for MoviePass, for all the parties, is that you, you're going to pay full price for these tickets that you know everyone's going to go see because the demand for it is super high and so you can charge full price and pe- people are willing to pay full price to go see Avengers Infinity War or Mission Impossible Fallout or Deadpool 2 or Solo or whatever it is right but people may, may not necessarily be willing to pay you know 10 to 15 dollars to go see 8th grade even if it's a better movie right and so if you can have movie pa- movie pass spread out the cost of that um you know, to seven dollars, eight nine, eight dollars, nine dollars, ten dollars a month, whatever it is. If you can have that and and make that cheaper, you know, someone if someone goes and see two indie movies a month, they might be able to say, okay, I will go see this indie movie. It's only five dollars for me if I see two of them per month. You know, that that's the structure that makes Movie Pass a sustainable business in my mind. I'm just not sure that they can go to that. They they can pivot to that now. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, and I, I don't want to disparage MoviePass because I have seen a lot of people disparaging them and using some pretty vicious rhetoric towards, you know, them and the way that they ran their business. Sure. But, I mean, you know, I can't deny that having MoviePass for almost a year was, I mean, an awesome experience. Like, being mm-hmm. able to go see all of these movies, you know, that we talked about on the podcast and other movies as well, mm-hmm. um, with paying a very nominal fee to do so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I hadn't experienced before. And, you know... AMC Stubbs, which I'm now a member of, sort of rose out of MoviePass. I mean, the fact that so many people were signing up for MoviePass, mm-hmm. AMC wanted to have a competitor, and yep. that's why they created Stubbs. So we have all these other services now because of MoviePass. So I don't want to be too harsh about it because, you know, it was the first of its kind. It was an experiment, if you want to say. And ultimately, while they may go under, like, I think that the experiment was probably a success in terms of achieving that type of goal like you are, are talking about there mm-hmm. of, of getting people to go to the movies. Yeah, and, and, I, and I agree. I mean, I'm not trying to disparage movie pass. I hope I didn't come no, off I didn't, that I way. No, I don't think you were. Yeah, yeah no, because I agree. I think that, at, I think that at, at its core, movie pass was designing people to go out and see more movies, and it was totally successful in that. The only problem is it wasn't successful in a way that made their business sustainable, and it's mm-hmm. unfortunate, and I'm just not sure they're going to be able to survive this. Yeah. All right, Scott, I think I don't have anything else for us to talk about. I think that should just about do it for episode 16 of Some Like It, Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Uh, no, not really. I, I wish I could have thought of something profound, but... Uh, go see but Mission yeah, Impossible Fallout. Yeah, do that. Don't go see Hot Summer. No, well, actually what you should do is go see 8th Grade because it's out nationwide now. Um, yep. And, you know, if you weren't able to catch it when it was in limited release you have no excuse now because it's playing at your local theater so go catch it because best movie of the year in my opinion uh you know i think it's hard to debate that and i'd love to debate that with more people because i want more people to go see it eighth grade's a wonderful yeah. movie where can people find you on twitter scott at scarvy dent cool and i can be found at at s shelton 2013 over on twitter more important than our personal Twitter page as well, more important to me than my personal Twitter page, is the Some Like It's Got Twitter page. <laughs> and we'd love it if you followed us over there on Twitter. That's at Media Plug Pods. And we'd love it even more if you checked us out over on our podcast Patreon page. There are a whole bunch of different reward tiers over there. We'd appreciate it so much, even if you only contributed at the $1 level. But for even that, you still get rewards. So go over there at www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods. Check out the different tiers. Pick the one that's right for you and help support this podcast if you can. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, where we'd also appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, as well as subscribed, shared, all that jazz, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you taking the time out of your day to listen to us, chat about movies. We'll be back in three weeks. That's right, three weeks, not two. We're taking another brief summer vacation before Scott starts school again. And when we return... We'll have two new movies, Black Klansman and Slender Man. We hope you'll enjoy you'll join us again then to hear what we have to say, but until then, we hope you have a wonderful day. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye everybody. Thanks for listening.